Let your river flow. 
There we go. Hi, everybody. Are we in North Carolina or some other planet? I've lived in big cities all my life, and I've not seen that many trees in a while out there. But it's good to be with all you. Thank you for having me to come and to be with you this weekend. My family all live in North Carolina. Uh, not this part. They live over in the Wilmington area. So my grandparents uh, pastored and built about 23 churches in the Wilmington, Burgall, Penderley, Wallace areas where all my cousins come from. Y'all know where that's at? If you know where Wallace and Penderley is, then you're special. And um, so I have a great love for this part of the country. I'm the only member of my family that was not born in this state. All my other cousins and sisters and everybody was all born in North Carolina. I was born in Tulsa, the Holy Mecca. And um, so I, I think I love uh, being raised in Tulsa by Southern North Carolina family. And so uh, it's a very great honor to be with you here tonight. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll start. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. And we thank you that tonight begins a journey. That we will go from here to someplace fresh and new in you for our personal lives and for our corporate gathering and for our nation. Let us be challenged. Let us be provoked. Let us be reproved that we might be able to bear more fruit that remains. Father, we want to be a fruit-bearing person that has remaining fruit in the earth. Not just temporal fruit for a moment that glows and fades away, but fruit that lasts generations and gives birth to higher dimensions of faith and victory. We thank you that you will cause the revival leaders of this house to be able to in, have inside of them the ability to make change that they may be able to cooperate with the time that they live in, we pray. We thank you for your blessing. And we vow to give you the glory for all of it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Give God a good shout if you would. Amen. Now, that sounded like a Baptist shout, not a Pentecostal shout. We're... The southern folks are known for being Pentecostal, right? And you amen and shout. So give God another good shout, if you would. All right. Much better. Heaven's not quiet, just dead people are. When you get to heaven, it's, it's loud, it's big, it's, it's exciting. So if you have a hard time shouting to God while you're here, you might not want to go to heaven because it's going to be a shouting for a long time. Amen. I want to, to begin, I'm going to just flow because it is Friday night, so I don't think many of you have any place else to go tomorrow but the prayer meeting. And so I'm not going to worry about what time it is. Is that okay? So if you have to go, you just go. If you have to go to the bathroom and come back, then you go and come back. I'm just going to go until I get done. I come from the long-winded tribe of preachers, so you might be long tonight. Amen. I first uh, want to give you a little of my story and uh, kind of journey that way. I was born in a Christian family, a full gospel spirit-filled family. And I'm glad that I was born in a tongue-talking, praying family that wasn't scared to pray out loud, loud enough for your own ears to hear your voice and the neighbors too next door. And uh, I was raised by two women. My natural father divorced my mother when I was five and a half and ran off and became a good sinner. And when I was about 15, he decided to try to be holy again. And thank God he did come back to God and died in faith. 
But my mother uh, and my grandmother uh, raised me and my sister. And I'm like Timothy in one way. Uh, I, he had Lois and Eunice. I have Gladeline and Carol is my mother and grandmother. And so my grandparents, as I said, were preachers. And my grandfather died when I was a year old. And my grandmother kept pastoring the church there in Wallace, North Carolina. And uh, my mother said, called my, her mother, my grandmother, and said, you know, I've got two children. And uh, their father has run off. And she was finishing her university at Oral Roberts University. She went there the first year that it opened. I was born the next year. So I grew up running through Oral Roberts' house in my diaper. So I just knew him as the guy with the big earlobes until later in life I figured out who he was. And uh, so that's how I grew up and uh, was in the great city of Tulsa. And she uh, asked my grandmother, will you come and help me take care of my children while I finish my university? And she prayed and God told her to do it. So she left her pastorate and moved from North Carolina to Tulsa. But she never stopped preaching. And she says, my best congregation was the congregation of two. And then she'd point at me and my sister. And because my grandmother preached at breakfast, and she preached at lunch, she preached at nighttime, and on the way to bed she preached to you, and you prayed in between. And that's how we lived our life. And growing up in our family, we prayed every night about 7, 7.30. I'm sure we missed a few nights in my childhood, but that's we prayed normally. And we were taught to pray as little kids. I never knew what a word of prayer was until I began traveling as a teenage evangelist because we never had a word of prayer. We prayed. You all know what I mean by that. Uh, we got down and when it's time to pray, you find your piece of carpet. We were kneelers. Today we were walkers and runners and vibrators and everything else. But we were kneeling people back then. And so we found our, our place on the carpet. And since there was four of us, uh, I had to, uh, we had to pick which one we would pray next to. I had to pray either next to my grandmother or my mother or my sister, vice versa. We couldn't be over in the corner on our iPads or playing with our toys. We had to pray. And we had to pray loud enough for our ears to hear our voice. Or they would elbow us, which would pick it up. Or when we get done, you got to do it over. And uh, so we grew up praying also with a kitchen timer. They had an old, that's before you had cell phones, had an old kitchen timer. And they would set it for two and a half minutes of English praying. And they'd go, ding. And when you got done with two and a half minutes of English, they'd set it again for another two and a half minutes for tongue praying. So we were developing English and tongues growing up. And so at the time we were 14 and 15, we could pray a couple hours thinking it was normal and didn't know that we were special. That most of the world didn't pray that long, including most pastors. And so they didn't know how to pray. That's why they don't have much breakthrough unless you can be a prayer warrior, not just a prayer seeker, but a warrior in the spirit. You're not going to have breakthrough. Your breakthrough is you doing the breaking through with Jesus. Amen. People's prayers to you may help you for a moment, but you have to do your own breakthrough with God. You live by your faith, not mine. Good evening, everybody. God didn't say, I reward you according to everybody's faith. He said, according to your faith, so be it. So in all you're getting, you better grow some big faith. Because sometimes you blame the pastor, you blame the prophet, you blame the evangelist, and it's your own dumb fault. Because you're a lazy, small little couch potato, wanting everybody else to do it for you. Because you weren't trained right. You were trained to be a beggar, not a worker. Uh, are you ready for my personality? Uh, you, you better get used to it because here it comes. And so uh, our prayer language had to grow too. And so in our prayer language, if we prayed in the same tongue, and they would say, what in the world are you doing? Oh, we're praying in tongues. No, you're gibbering. Speak in tongues and quit playing that kind of game. And so they made us learn how to speak and articulate 
the voice of the Spirit inside of us. And instead of, and cry. <laughs> we didn't cry much. We prayed. All this emotion is secondary to spiritual activity. We've allowed spiritual activity to be sorted up by emotionalism. And that's why there's little fruit in most people's lives as they could have if they would do it more. And so they would say, stop that and speak in tongues. The same way you talk to somebody. You don't walk up to someone and go, you don't talk to somebody like that. So why would you talk to God or work with God in prayer? With a... That didn't work in our house. So they had grandma had a rule. It's not a Bible. It's a grandma rule. That you pray loud enough for your own ears to hear your voice. And your prayer language has to grow every week or there's something wrong with you. And that's how I grew up. And so, if we didn't pray properly, they'd be making us pray when they got done an hour and a half, two hours later, and they'd sit next to us and they speak up. If I can't hear you, I doubt if God can hear you. That's a grandma statement too, by the way. And so, uh, those are good for training. They may not be good doctrines, but they're good for training. And so, one afternoon, we were, or evening, we were preparing dinner in the summer, and uh, my grandmother stayed home and, and took care of us while my mother worked. She had become the breadwinner. So, in the summer times, during... Uh, my grandmother prayed every day about 11 o'clock. She'd been doing that since she was 17 years old. I'm sure she missed some of that, but her time. Because she learned from a great prayer warrior in the early 1900s, if you set a time and you be faithful to it, God will be there waiting for you when you get there. And so God and her developed a friendship from the age of 17. Now she was in her 60s. And when she walked into her bedroom at 11, God was already there. But we had to go with her because she didn't allow little kids to run around the house. So she told us, uh, go to the bathroom, because you can't go to the bathroom until I'm done praying, so you better go now. And go get your toys, and get in here, and you better not fight with your sister. When I get done, you'll get a spanking. And then she would shut the door and kneel in front of the door so we couldn't get out. Because when she would pray, she would leave earth and go to the spirit world and not know what's going on much on the earth. So she knew two little kids left to themselves could get into some mischief and some trouble. So she well, would pray like that and kneel in front of the door. So And she'd pray a couple hours so you could play with your little trucks and color for a while. And then after a while, the only thing entertaining to look at was her. And you'd sit there and you'd watch her. And I learned the move of the Spirit by watching my grandmother pray. And I learned the ways of tongues that way is too. Because we would learn that when her tongues would go into overdrive, if you were close to her, your goosebumps got bigger. And we liked that feeling as little kids. So we would wait for those special tongues. And when she would start, see, she's about to do it. So we'd run over and kind of get on her legs and on her lap and get a hold of her. Because when she would hit that overdrive, oh, bam, the room would change. And you'd get that feeling. And we loved the feeling. We didn't know what to call it, but we loved that feeling. And she made two young kids addicted to the other world. And so we began to learn to pray. And then one time we were cooking dinner and preparing for dinner. And, and uh, she said, I've noticed that your prayer language has not been growing. I said, well, at least I pray in tongues. Nobody else on this street's kids do. She said, I don't compare you to everybody else in the neighborhood. I compare you against the scriptures and what you're capable of. And your prayer language is stuck. And it has to change now. I said, fine. She says, go down and get your new tongue. I said, where do you get them? She said, the, the same place you got the last one. Down in your belly. Thought, well, what do you mean go get them? She goes, it's down there behind your kidneys. Go down there and get it. So I tried to find my little deposit wherever it was. And did my little, who could be good? She I didn't say cry. I said, go get it. I said, well, I can't find it. 
She turned off the stove, walked over to me, laid her hands on my belly, and went, Hi-yaka! and pulled it out of me. It came like, oh, that was behind both kidneys back there. <laughs> and uh, so I learned that day that you don't have to wait for a special anointing. It just comes out of your belly where everything else comes from. If you go down and dig, you can uncover the beauty of the growth of your diversity of tongues. And so I grew up in, in that kind of home. I was blessed not abused. I was blessed. When I was eight years old, I had my first vision. I was taken to heaven for a, a few hours. I don't know why God does what he does sometimes. You um, People think that you know you can figure it out or you can pay for certain things. There's a certain thing called the sovereignty of God. He does what he wants to do with who he wants to do it and the way he wants to do it. And he may not do that with you. It's, it's his will. Most people get a one-way ticket to heaven. They go there and stay. I got a round trip. I went there and got to come back. If I ever get to go back, I will not come back. And if you raise me, I'll come back and punch you and take off again. Uh, you know, when you get on the other side, you can see why some people that were in the hospital the day before wanting to get healed and they got a glimpse of heaven somewhere between last night and this morning and they took off and left you behind. And then you're trying to figure out, well, we prayed and we cried and we confessed and we prophesied. We did all these things, but, you know, they still left. What happened? They got a glimpse of the other side and they love you, but not that much. So don't take it personal. Just know that you'll see them again. If you get a chance to get a glimpse, you'll go too. And I went to heaven for an afternoon. I did not die. I was taken. And that's where my call came to me as an eight-year-old boy. At the end of that special little trip, it's when the call of God came to me. And he sent me back to earth to obey him while I was yet called young, was one of his words. And then I was 12 years old and a half when I had my second vision of the Lord. I was watching television one afternoon. And I was watching my favorite show at that time called The Vernon Shirley. You might remember that old TV show? And that kind of dates you, but I know where you're coming from. And so I was sitting on the sofa watching my show. And all of a sudden, a foot walked through the door without opening it. And then the whole body came through. And Jesus was standing there, and he took about four steps toward me where I was sitting, and the whole room moved back about 500 yards, it seemed like, where you could hear the TV in the distance. And he said to me, study the lives of my generals. Know why they succeeded and why some failed. Because there will come a generation who will neither know what I will teach you if you'll be faithful to what I ask you this day. If you will obey me, you will save gifts unwrap them and restore gifts unto men as a part of what I will teach you. And because you obey me, I will make the generals of your day to be your friend. And he said a few more things and then walked back out the door and I went back to watching TV. You say, why did, why did you go back to watching TV? When you're 12 years old, that's what you do. You don't get up and have a shakabahai across the front room floor. You're 12 years old, and I didn't like what he said, to be honest with you. I wasn't trying to be rude or mean, but I, when he said study, I knew what that meant. I thought, I don't want to study. I want to go play basketball. I want to go be with my friends. 
we all, and my mother earned two doctorates and a master, so me and my sister went to school, and my mother went to school, so we all did homework together. So I knew what it was to be a studier and go to libraries with my mother when she did her study. So I knew what that meant, and I thought, I don't want to read about preachers, because most of the ones I've seen at that time were bald-headed, fat, and spit when they preached. And that's what I thought preachers were. I didn't know there was anything else to it, because that's what I was around most of my life, that kind of Pentecostal-style preacher. And so, but I was taught in the Pentecostal church, there was only two wills of God. The will of God and the one you're not in. We didn't have a degree of permissive and acceptable and that. Either you're in or you're out. And, uh, you know, that, that, that helped you stay a little bit on the straight and narrow. Uh, sometimes we've, we've taught things so beautifully that people live carnal while they think they're still in the will of God. It's a different sermon. This is my introduction, so I'm taking my time. You have to get used to me. And uh, and so I thought, I don't want to do that. But I didn't want to be outside the will of God because if you're outside the will of God, they, they kind of left the impression that if Jesus comes and you're out of his will, you don't get to go. And that scared me. I didn't want to miss the rapture and have to face the guillotine of the Antichrist. So you know how those was in those days. You were scared that the Antichrist was going to kill you and chop your head off and they're going to put Mark 666 on your head and you had to run for your life. And all those, they, they made a good believer out of you through fear. You ran to Jesus so you wouldn't go to hell. And I didn't want to be outside the will of God. So I picked up my first book to, to read and I got consumed with a passion to study the lives of people that God used to know what gifts they had, what they overcame, what they went through, what they did right and what they did wrong. Not from a judgmental, but from a learning situation. Since then, I've read around 14,000 books so far in my life. That's why I wear glasses. My eyes are still tired. If you don't read, you stay stupid. Write that down. I hope you take notes in this church. A reader is a person of learning. A non-reader is a person that will be taken advantage of by not knowing what to do in times and seasons of their life. So you, you can learn two ways, young men. You can pay an institution to discipline you to get you to learn something. Or you can build a surf, a personal disposition of discipline and be a self-studier and learn the same way. Most people don't do self-discipline. That's why you'll pay $40,000 to a university to educate only one part of your head. They don't educate your body or your spirit. They'll educate your intellect only. And your parents will pay $40,000 or $100,000 for your education. And all you've got was one part of your head working right. And the rest of you are messed up. That's why they uh, can be the greatest mind of law, but they weigh 400 pounds. Someone then teach them about how to take care of their body. Are you all here? I hope so. And, and, and so I begin to read all of these books and then I found out, wow, some of their kids were alive and their secretaries were still alive and some of the folks that knew some of these people. So I began to hunt them down and my best friends became old women that knew dead preachers. My first date in life was an old woman that her and her husband worked as the associate pastors of Sister McPherson and Angela's Temple. I went to her house. Old ladies don't go to movies. They cook dinner for you. And you sit at the end of the table and you talk. And if they're Pentecostal, halfway through the meal, they start praying softly in tongues, revving their engine to attack you later. 
And they'd sit and tell me the stories of how God did certain things that they were able to see and be a part of. And they're building me capacity to believe for it today. And I've spent most of my life with the older people. An old person has lived their life out and they have one human passion is to give what they have to someone that seeks it. You have three stages in life. From zero to 40 or early 50s are your, your learning years. 50 or late 40s to your 60, 70 are really your, your, your using years. And after that are your giving years. If I can get the givers and the learners together, you might have a great combination. That's why the devil works overtime to make sure that a young man like this will not sit with an elderly lady over here uh, for lunch. Because the wisdom of that man or that woman can make you a success while you're yet young and help you marry the right person and not go through three women to find the right one. But most people don't talk like that because you want your own way. Your own ways have to be something you died to if you're going to be great in God's kingdom. The greater you go in God, the less of you exist. The more you obey the kingdom of God and the mandate of your life, the more of your ambition that ever gets voiced or pursued in life. I preached my first sermon at 13. I wrote my first book at 17, sold it a me and a half of them in the first year. And the Lord blessed my life. Been to 127 countries so far. And I've got the only the 195 is how many nations in the world. I've done already half of them. You say, why? Because I didn't listen to stupid people. And go to a dumb church that told me to be calm and to calm down and to act like dead people who thought well, they were alive. Are you here tonight? And so that's a little bit of my story of how I got where I am tonight. I'm 51 years old. I have preached my entire life. I plan to be preaching when I die as an old man. I plan to be with all the young people, no matter how they look in those days. I'm going to be smack dab in the middle of them having a great time. I'm not going to die with the old people. I'm going to die with the young people. Amen. They may have music I don't relate to. They may do things I don't understand. But if they love God and they can jump for Jesus, then I can jump too. Amen. And so we hope that this weekend will be good for you. Amen. How many have ever read any of my 78 books? Can I see your hand? How many have read none of my books? Can I see your hand? You're all in sin. And the only way to get out of that sin is read one of my books. Amen. All right. Probably the one you've been talking about is the generals, but that's volume one. There's six volumes back there. And there will be 12 when I'm done with the series. And I write in this one about 12 great leaders. Daddy Seymour, Evan Roberts, Mother Edder, Captain Kuhlman, Sister McPherson, John G. Lake. Uh, uh, Brother Branham, Jack Coe, fat man, Jack Coe, 375 pounds when he died. Uh, don't be that fat, you die early. A lot of people don't realize if you're going to obey the call of God in your life, your body's got to be healthy enough to run with it. So I feel called to China. Can your butt sit in an airline seat and get you there? If you can't, then you might want to fix that. Oh, good evening, everybody. Everybody says, I had a whole church of 2,000 Californians. That's called a project. And... Um, when you pastor Californians, you can pastor anywhere in the world. If you can, out, if you can compete with Mickey, the beach, and all the drug people, then you can win. Uh, and uh, so we pastored for 20 years out there, and uh, it, it was interesting.
how those people are. And uh, a lot of times people don't realize they in my church, I feel called to Africa. Can you handle the heat? Can you drink warm Coca-Cola and be happy? <laughs> you feel called of God to go to the world, but you got to get your body and your mind ready to go there. I've slept in more huts, ate more food, I didn't know what to call it, and bathed in rivers while the whole town watched you bathe. Welcome to your future. We sometimes think being a missionary means you go and, and you go find a hotel. That's only in America. When you go overseas, you end up sleeping with the pastor's kids in the bunk beds. Good morning, everybody. Amen. And then I write little bitty books for folks that are scared of my big books. Here's a new one I just wrote called Heads Up. How to have a powerful spirit and an excellent spirit in a world of crazy people. How do you like that one? I take that from the life of Daniel. Daniel was captured out of his country. Went to a foreign country as a slave where they spoke a different language, ate a different food, and he still served God and his gifts operated around all those crazy people and he became the vice president. So there's hope for you in America. Amen. See, Brother Roberts, well, the call of God is powerful. We're going to talk about that tonight. Now, that's a big book. It's not a doorstopper. It's a book. See, how do you read a big book? The same way you read a small book. One page at a time. Now, why this book is special, it took me over 15 to 20 years to make it. All the unpublished sermons of Smith Wigglesworth, I've found all over the world. Now, some of the books they put out today, Brother Wigglesworth, they edit out the prophecies. Dumb publishers. They, they, I, even my own publisher was trying to do that. And I had a Pentecostal fit and said, you'll not do that. So that's why I put this one together, because they were taking my research and taking out the tongues and interpretation and the song of the Lord and all those things because they thought the folks wouldn't like it. I said, have you been to a Pentecostal church lately? We love this stuff. So I put left all that stuff in there and that's back there for you. And then I have a big John G. Lake book back there. Ever heard of John G. Lake? I knew his daughter right before she died. Gertrude Wright and her husband, Wilford. I was driving her from Hagen's office in Tulsa to Oral Roberts' office in Tulsa. So I had her for like eight miles from the two offices. So I thought, I've got to ask for some questions and ask for stuff. So I said, you have any of your dad's stuff I can have? And Tulsa's little mile blocks, you know. And uh, she she just looked at me for a mile. And I thought, well, maybe I guess I offended her. And then at the next time she goes, Yes. And waited another mile to tell me what it was. She gave me all of her father's unpublished sermons in the family pictures. And so back there on my book table is a thousand page book of all of John G. Lake's unpublished sermons, if you like Brother Lake. And um, have you ever heard of Catherine Kuhlman? Anybody ever saw her in person besides me? Oh, some of it. You saw her on TV. How many saw her in person? Like live in person. All right. She's the greatest preacher I've ever seen, young guys. You can take all the prophets and push them together and she still wins. Now, that's a lot. But most people, they, they've never seen power like that woman had. Now, I've been around all the greats in my life. Brother Roberts, Brother Hagen, you know, the prophets and things that you're familiar with. And they're all wonderful. But that woman... She had something I've not seen since her death. We met her as a little boy. In, in the green room, we call it today, and, uh, and was in three of her services. The greatest thing about a Catherine Kuhlman meeting is not what you saw. 
No, that was great. I saw people come out of wheelchairs, like you get out of that great chair and walk off. 15, 20, 30 of them at a time. Just get up and walk off like they came in perfectly normal. Just, and no one touched them. No one said, boo. They just got up ah, and walked off. I saw a crippled nun. Let me tell the story. I saw a crippled nun. It's not my sermon, so I'm taking my time. I haven't got to my text yet, all right? I saw a crippled nun. I wasn't raised around Catholics. I was raised, I was raised in Oklahoma, around Native Americans and a few Baptists and Pentecostals, what I grew up with. So penguin suits, I didn't understand as a little boy. And I remember when they came in, I said to mom, why are they dressed like penguins? Because I, I, I didn't grow up around them. I wasn't trying to be rude. I was just a little boy watching, like, what's the black and white thing for? It looked like, like penguins. And they pushed in a crippled nun like this in their little habits. And, um, and then Catherine Kuhlman came out. Catherine Kuhlman came out. When she came out, it was like the room got electrified with higher voltage. And the anointing of Captain Kuma meeting didn't do this. It started like this, and it kept accelerating the whole time you were there. The first thing you know when you're in the glory, time no longer speaks to you. As long as time talks to you, you're in the flesh. The first thing that leaves when the power of God hits the room, when the glory cloud comes in, time disappears. So as long as a pastor or a church is aware of time, you're not quite in the glory yet. All right? Not trying to be mean, but to be honest. And so, Captain Kuhlman's meetings went three, four, five hours. Five hours. And you didn't even go to the bathroom. And you're a kid. You just sit there. You just watch this whole thing. The greatest thing about a Captain Kuhlman meeting was what you felt for three, four, five hours. I remember as a little boy... My, my whole body would just quiver just a little bit where you could feel it all over for hours. It just quivered just a little bit. And you sit there and you could feel it. Ooh. And she was very dramatic. And she talked funny. You know why she talked funny? When she's a little girl, she had a stuttering problem. And her mother made her overpronunciate every word she said to compensate for her speaking, uh, her speech impediment. So that's why she went the Holy Spirit is my friend. Don't grieve him because I have no healing power of virtue. Everybody goes, okay, we won't grieve him. Where is he at? People came in. And they didn't know anything. They saw her on TV. They came and people warned them, be careful if you go to a Catholic school. She'll hypnotize you. And they said all kinds. They called her a witch. Because of the glory came with that woman. And so she spoke very dramatically and cried. She didn't preach anything very deep. She wasn't a deep teacher or a preacher. If you'll hear her shows, it's like, yeah, okay, great. Uh, get to the miracles. Get, get to the flowy part. You know, go, go, go do it. Because she just sat there and had her little heart talked on and cried and talked about her friend, the Holy Spirit, and, and oh, he's wonderful. And, and then all of a sudden, bing, that gift of hers would hit the room. Bam! And she had the most accurate word of knowledge. In the balcony behind that pole up there, you have this problem, you've just been healed. And you like... And so I go, and you hear him. And it starts happening all over, and then it starts happening so fast... But you can't take it in. 
it's like 30 cripples at one time, gets up and starts walking. How does your head focus on 30 cripples and see the miracle? It's too much. Your brain goes, ah, and falls over. Because you can't comprehend it. You're and I remember a little Catholic nun was pushed in like this with her hands all like this. And all of a sudden, without anybody touching her, her wrist began to move like that. And then the weirdest thing happened when her wrist got like this. Each finger until all ten was like this. And then the angel, the Lord, whoever, whatever, was pulling. And it began to pull her arms like this. And you could hear them go... And when they got it like that, it kept pulling her right up out of the wheelchair. And she was trying to walk. And then all of a sudden, about her fourth, fifth step, she took off normal and began to walk around that auditorium for the next hour. And would not. And her hands were up the whole time. And the little nuns were with her, grabbed their prayer beads and chased her like that behind her. Because that's what you do when you're a Catholic nun and somebody gets out of a wheelchair. You grab the prayer beads, you say, Hail Mary and Hallelujah and chase the woman. And, 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 and that's... What I saw, the greatest, the greatest preacher I ever saw, her altar calls, her altar calls, sometimes weren't even verbal. If you sit for three hours and watch sick people get healed, and God flies around the room and keeps saturating you and blowing your mind and touching your heart, When it comes time for the end, you don't know why you got up and ran to the front, but there you are. Many times her altar calls were not even verbal. She would just take a step back and she could feel the pull of the spirit. And people would get up from the balcony, the main balcony. And I remember seeing they wouldn't walk. They ran down the aisles to get saved. Sometimes she'd just say, if you want Jesus, come. And they came. Now, most of you have never seen that. You've only heard a story of it. But you're going to see it in your lifetime. Maybe God will use you to have just that. When I begin studying the generals, the Lord said, Learn from the past, but live in the present. So as we go through some of these things tonight, we're not trying to make what happened the past happen again. We want to be inspired that He can do that and greater things again. Miss Kuhlman was the greatest preacher I ever saw in my life. And I wrote her life story and she wouldn't allow people to film her. She only allowed one miracle service in her life to be filmed because she thought cameras were imposing on people's privacy. Now, I, I don't agree with that, but that's the way she thought about it. And they didn't allow recordings. But I got one. When she was at the First Methodist Church in Oklahoma, they let a woman preacher come on a Sunday morning at the First Methodist Church. First Methodist. Dead people. Methodist. And for some reason, they allowed this crazy, famous, red-headed woman to come and... She couldn't preach, but she could share. To come and share on a Sunday morning. And I got the recording from the pastor... And so you can get it and listen to her. But that Methodist service, when they got done, half of them were on the floor speaking in tongues. So they were no longer 
dead Methodists. They were live Pentecostals. Amen. So you'll enjoy all of that. Amen. Praise the Lord. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Now that I kind of got your attention, I can tell I got you lost there with that little story. Hallelujah. Everybody smile. Something good's going to happen to you. We're in camp meeting, so I'm going to change my gears now. So I'll let you get used to it just a little bit. So, um, the book of Acts is the greatest revival book ever written according to the history of mankind. It is the only book in the Bible that is still being written today. Every other book in the Bible has a beginning, a message, and a goodbye. The book of Acts has no ending. It has an abrupt stop. And I want to read the last two verses of the book of Acts. And it says this, Acts 28, verse 30 and 31 says, Paul dwelt two years in his own hired house and received everybody that came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. And then the book of Acts goes, bing, and just stops. And all we learned about the last two verses of Acts that Paul had a landlord and he paid rent. So if you all pay rent, you're biblical. You're just like Paul. Paul didn't live off of mooching off the saints. He paid rent and took care of himself. Thank you for the no amens on that. You guys amen here in the gathering? All right, well, amen me. I like that. It helps me preach better when I'm, you know, when I'm doing this. So he, he paid rent. So spiritual people still do life well. If you can't be spiritual and do life well, you're called a flake. Okay? So, as a guest, I can say things that maybe the pastor won't say because I leave Sunday morning. So if I make you mad, it's your problem, not mine. If I make you happy, your problem, not mine. I'm happy on both of those accounts. So, if you're here today, or you're watching me, and you're trying to be a great man and woman of God, be a general of God in revival, and you can't pay your rent, shut up and go pay your rent before you preach a sermon. Learn how to take care of your family, pay your bills on time, and learn how to do multitasking of two worlds. All you millennials that think you can multitask with four or five phones, why don't you multitask the spirit world and the natural world and get that going first? Then God might use you to carry on a revival or build a great church or have a Captain Kuhlman type of anointing. He might give it to you once you pass his test. Things from heaven don't all come free. When they tell you that, they're lying to you. If it came free, why don't you have it? Mm -hmm. We have made something so cheap that we can live like the devil and think we deserve it. There is prices to different dimensions of God's mighty power. And those things, you have to discover what they are. There is the biblical prices that we see. And then there is covenantal, unique prices to people and their giftings. You cannot fulfill another person's calling. You've got to fulfill yours. Amen. And it says, Paul preached and he taught. He did two things. He proclaimed and he explained supernaturally the things pertaining to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody needs to be able to preach the declarational preaching and have the divine explanation to be a quality minister. Then, then the book of Acts just stops. It just boop. But it is continued under a different name. It's called church history. Church history, we're now on some billionth chapter of the book of Acts. I hope you get in it. Some people will live their whole Christian life and never get mentioned for one thing they did in the divine book 
of, of the book of Acts. Some will do a few things and they will be mentioned as a group. Some will do a little bit more and they'll get a couple of verses. I'm going for a couple of chapters. I don't know about you. I want to have a wild life. You only live 70, 80, maybe 90 years before you die. So that's called short compared to eternity. So quit tiptoeing through the earth and start stomping and enjoying while you're here. And quit worrying about public opinion because it changes like weather. So ignore it. Live loud. Live brave. Live strong. And quit apologizing for being anointed. Half of the things is we're trying to accommodate everybody else but God and His plan. We're accommodating culture that's crazy. We're accommodating dead churches that we shouldn't be a part of. We're accommodating controlling leaders who need to be rebuked. And we accommodate everybody else but God and His purpose in the earth. We, we, we go through history and we look at these people and we go, wow, wouldn't it be great to be there? I don't know if you would join them if you would have been alive in their day. Everybody's like better once you're dead. Because you can't talk anymore and you can't provoke anything anymore. When I'm dead, they'll love me. While I'm alive, they'll love and hate me. So if you're going to be great, you have to learn how to be hated and loved at the same time and ignore both. And live in the altitude of your calling. You have two cheeks. They're both will be red for two different reasons. One side you'll be kissed. The other side you'll be bit. But you'll have two red cheeks. That's how you have to live. And so when you begin the journey through history, you learn how God does beautiful things. He chose 12 men, young men, like your age. They weren't my age. They were young teenagers. And 20-year-old, they were young men that Christ picked out of the career world. They weren't lazy, dumb butts. They were smart career people making money and taking care of their life. One we know for sure had a family named Peter. These were the people that he chose. All of them died a martyr's death, but one. The youngest, whose name was John, who lived a part of his ending of his life on an island called Patmos. It was a work island for prisoners that had been captured and then put there for imprisonment. When a new governor had come to power, he wanted to skip favor with the citizenry of those around about him. And so he let many of the prisoners on that island go free. And one of the men he let go free was St. John. So John was able to leave the island of Patmos, where he had the book of Revelation that we're still trying to figure out. When we get to heaven, and said, can you explain your writing to us? He comes off of that island, and he goes to church. Can you imagine an apostle not going to the church that Jesus came to build? Think if you were the pastor of a church, and sitting in your gathering set the last living apostle of the Lamb named John. And over on the other side of the church, visiting this week, was Mary, his mother, or his brother. He'd kind of be intimidated, but that's the way it was in the early days. And he traveled not far as an old man, but many came to him. When St. John finally died, his last words were very unique. He didn't say, find a new anointing, even though that would have been good. Pray more prayers. That would have been nice, but he didn't say that. 
St. John is recorded by those at his bedside when he died to have uttered the last words of instructions from that kind of person to us today is love one another and St. John died. The last words of the twelve apostles that were known on this planet was not find a vision or get a new anointing or walk in the gifts of the Spirit which would have been appropriate and wonderful to hear those words but even back then the fussing of the church had already begun arguing with one another and division and John said love one another and quit fussing how much more would he say that today if he was alive today you see every one of you that are born again have inside of you a go tell muscle but the problem is if you don't go tell the good news you'll end up using that muscle to be a gossiper about somebody around you and the followers of the disciples continued successfully four or five hundred years they preached this kind of message. God is a good God. And He so loved the world that if you believe in Him, you'll have everlasting life and not die. And they healed the sick and heaven was bigger than hell. Forgiveness bigger than judgment. And they were able to confirm their message with three things. Signs, wonders, and miracles. But when that began to die out a few hundred years later, when men decided to build institutions and buildings and worried about their hat and their rings and their clothes more than the cloak of anointing, than the cloud of glory, than building the kingdom, and they begin to build structures in place of building the natural kingdom of God in the earth, they died. And they replaced signs, wonders, and miracles, young men, with three main things, ceremony, ritual, and tradition. And all of a sudden, that which birthed the church, the love message of God, the power of the God that healed the sick and delivered and raised the dead with signs, wonders, and miracles, now had been changed to where hell becomes bigger in their preaching than heaven. And the anger of God than the love and the forgiveness of God. And no longer were we quoting John 3.16, but we would preach sermons like, God's going to get you. God's going to get you. God is mad at you. And the poor citizens of the earth came under a religious demonic power that ruled the religion part of the church. For over a thousand years, the world heard the message about Christ in a false message, a false expression. Every once in a while, a little guy would pop his head up and say, I think there's a problem, and they would kill him. And they'd wait for another decade or two or another hundred years. And another little priesty dude would be reading the Bible by accident and begin to say, there's something wrong with this picture. If you went to church in those days, they didn't have a Bible. And the devil doesn't want anybody to have a Bible. That's why you have 50 of them but never read them. The same devil that didn't want to get it translated into English and Spanish and French and Russian works today to make sure that you have all of the translations on your phone, but you never really read them. That's the same spirit that worked in the ancient times. So that when you went to church, when the little dumb priesty dude would preach, when he would read the Bible, he would read it in the dead language of Latin so nobody understood it. 
So all the little people would go to church and they would hear the priest read the scriptures and they were just so happy to hear it, but it was not in their language. That's a dumb devil controlling people from hearing the word. And so when they would preach, they would preach things like this. When it thunders and lightning outside, that's God's anger against you. So every time it thundered, ah, God's mad at me. God's going to kill me. That's what they thought. And the church needed some money. They didn't know how to preach prosperity biblically, so they had to milk it out of you. So what did they do? Let's find ways to get money out of everybody to build these dumb cathedrals. They look real pretty when you see them now. Go look at them and go, wow, take your pictures, and then on the way out, kick it. Because it was built on the manipulation of generations. And so they wanted to build big cathedrals and big institutions so they could have the biggest people and look the greatest people. And so we need some money. So let's go get bones of the apostles and we'll float them around Europe. And everybody will line up and you give me $10 and you can look at Peter's finger. You can look at Paul's thumb. You can see some splinters from the cross, some nails from the cross that nailed Christ to the tree. And we have them all running around. The weirdest one of all was one little dumb dude was traveling around Europe with milk from the breast of the Virgin Mary that Christ would drink. Now that'll show you how stupid it got. Now you react today because you don't live back then. They had no one like you and me to talk to them. They had no Bibles to give to them. And so all of a sudden they just kind of swallowed it as true. But they needed some more money because all the bone parts and the tree parts and the nail parts wasn't making enough money. So what do we do next? What we do next is let's tell you that your grandpa got stuck in between in this place called purgatory. And if you give me a thousand dollars, I'll pop him out for you. And that is another way that they raise money for their cathedrals and abuse the goodwill and the, the, the honesty of the people of the time. A man in Czechoslovakia named John Huss rose up. And begin to do something radical. He actually preached his sermons in the Czech language. Ah, you can't do that. And read the Bible in the Czech language. Ah, how dare you take God's holy word and put it in the barbarian languages of the earth. That's how they talked about it. Read it in a dead language so no one understands it. And that's holy. But read it in a living language so somebody can get it. That's demonic. Welcome to Christianity in time. How the church has survived has been a miracle by itself. But we did, and we will survive our day today too. And we will have a move of God in our time. And we're going to have every vision and every prophecy that God has spoke in the Bible and through other servants. It is going to come to pass. Hallelujah. Oh, And so, John Huss got in trouble. Uh-oh. And they're going to burn him alive. Which they did do. But on his way to being burned alive, he prophesies. Now it's time to prophesy. Could you prophesy on your way to your burning? You wonderful prophets. See, we think we have persecution today. It's just something that won't buy your CD. That's not persecution. Or give you $25. That's not persecution, please. He's on his way to being burned alive for preaching heresy, which is not true. He prophesies a hundred years from now. There's a man a coming you're not going to be able to stop. And he 
gets tied to the post and the flames are set. It consumes him and while he is being burned alive, he sings the Psalms. And the last utterance from this great man named John Huss was the Psalms he was singing as his spirit left his burned body and into his heavenly reward. A hundred years from that time in Germany, a little guy was going home and got caught in a German thunderstorm. And a lightning bolt, bam, hit the ground where he was at. And it was so powerful, he was knocked to the ground because of the strength of that lightning bolt. And he thought God was going to kill him. You know what he did? He didn't scream out for Jesus or the Father. He screamed and screamed out for Mother Mary. He had to go to the grandma, Saint Anne. Because Mary was busy, Jesus was too consumed, and God was too big. So we had to start with the aunt, or the grandmother, of Saint Anne. So Saint Anne, he yelled out to Saint Anne, I'll be a preacher, I'll be a monk. Just don't kill me. And a little guy named Martin Luther had just changed careers from law school, now to becoming in seminary, as we call it today, or monastery. His dad got mad like most parents do because parents plan their life according to their ambition, not God's call upon their child. If you want your children to be end-time revivalists, get God's plan for your child and let your plan die. And shut up about it. And drop it. Good preaching. Amen. We all pray for your kids to obey the Lord, but... It's amazing how much you've planned out their five-year plan, their ten-year plan, and everything. And God may want them to go to Africa and not Oxford. You know, in history, the greatest minds went to the mission field. Today, we send the idiots to the mission field and not the greatest minds. That's why the revival doesn't happen overseas. That's why evangelism suffers so much in the nations of the world. Because we send the folks who don't know what to do and don't know how to do it and won't do it. So we'll just get me out of your church and go to India. That's why revival don't happen. That's why revivals and missions were so great in the past because the greatest minds and the greatest people that was in society, they went to the field with their education to represent God properly and help them spiritually and naturally. We may want to follow their example again and send the best of our churches to the fields of harvest and not the pain in the butts to the field of harvest. Thank you for the one clap and the amen from the bishop. You invited me. This is just my... Are you, are you okay? Yeah. All right. All right. I can't see the clock because I don't have my glasses on, so I don't know what time it is. Hallelujah. <laughs> and so Martin Luther leaves law school because back in those days, you had a lot of kids for two reasons. One, uh, there was no birth control, so you kept having lots of kids. And two, that was your Obamacare. In those days, you had to have enough children. And hopefully one of your children would live long enough and make enough money to take care of you as an old person. And so he wanted Martin Luther to be a lawyer. Good field, good mind. And he quit because Martin Luther was a man of his word. Unlike some of the people today. And you want to be a servant of God and you can't keep your word to your friend and your neighbor, let known to God in the call. That's why some things don't work. Just a thought for you. And so his, his father gets mad, but Luther keeps his word because he screamed to St. Anne. And Anne told Mary. Mary told Jesus. Jesus told the father. And so he has to keep it. Really what it was. And so during Martin Luther's first officiation of what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, he's holding the glass of wine, the juice, and spills some of it on the floor. Wow. His father had a fit. You can't even do communion right. 
Now, even the spiritual covering him was kind of upset because he spilt the juice on the floor because he was so scared. He was shaking. And... Now, why was that a big deal? Because they believed that the actual juice and the actual bread would turn into the actual blood and the actual flesh of Christ. So you dispilt the holy blood on the floor. That's how he started his ministry. Isn't that wonderful? There's hope for the rest of you. But Martin Luther writes something in his journal. I hate Can you believe that? This great preacher-to-be writes in his journal this sentiment, I hate God. He's unjust. He's not fair. He demands certain things and doesn't show us how to get to do it or the path by which we can have peace with God. And Martin Luther struggled in his whole beginning ministry career with trying to find a way to have peace with Jehovah. And so if you were back then in the 1500s where Martin Luther lived at that time, and you were Catholic because there was nothing else but Catholics and sinners. That was it. And so there was all these other groups like we have today. So you're either in or you're out. Either you're going to hell or you're going to heaven. And the Catholic Church controlled everything, and most of it was wrong. And so he would go to confession. Ever been to confession? Anybody ever did confession? All right, so you know what I'm in the little room with a little curtain and a little hole in the wall. And the guy on the other side goes, yeah, 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 I heard that yesterday. You know, and then, you know, 40 Hail Marys and three this's and three that's and, and you get fixed with your, your confession and everything. He tried to confess everything <laughs> to the point that his one confession went over eight hours. Can you imagine being in the little booth with a guy that was confessing everything he thought he did, he might do, and that he would do tomorrow? And so the priest finally said, I'm going to paraphrase it, just confess the big stuff. Because I can't take no more of this. It's got to come to an end. And so that is how Martin Luther tries to find people by buying all the rules. So he confesses everything he can think of. He goes to confession, does more confession, and he does things and wears bad clothes and doesn't take baths. I don't know how that makes you holy, but they all do it. And so his spiritual father did not know what to do with Martin because Martin was always having depression and anxiety and troubles. So they had an idea. Let's send him to Rome, the holy city where the holy father is and all the holy relics and all the holy people. So there's no BMWs and there's no highways. So you have to walk all the way from Germany to Italy to go to the Holy Vatican to see his holiness and do all those things. And while he was there, he was asked to do one thing that he had a second thing he wanted to do. He was asked to bring up some of the debates in the school that they wanted the Pope to kind of give the, the answer to. But in Martin's heart, he wanted Grandpa out of purgatory. So one of his things was to get Grandpa popped out so he could go on and be happy. So hopefully while he was there, he would do this and somehow find a way to pop him out. So he does everything that you can do when you go there. They had the 26 steps by which Christ supposedly walked upon before Pilate. So you get on your knees and you pay some money. And on each step you say a prayer. 26 times you can go all the way to the top. Bing! And you're blessed or something. And so they did all that kind of stuff. And they went and saw the blood of this and the finger of that and the hair of this and all this kind of stuff. It's all they all did. And when Martin Luther finally gets to the top of the staircase, 
He sat up there and sees all these people doing this stuff and seeing things that aren't quite right. And a thought goes through his head. It goes, mm, pops out the other side. A little phrase that he'd heard. The child shall live And ding, it was gone. Little ding, little, little phrase. He goes back home from Germany, or from Rome to Germany, and is worse than he was before he left. Besides confession, now he's beating himself with ropes because he's got to suffer like Christ. So he's beating himself and bleeding on the back and, and fasting until he gets sick. And he's beating and fasting and confessing and beating and fasting and running around with Jesus. And he's doing all this. And I don't know what to do with him. Somehow, as time passes, they send him to be a professor in the city of Wittenberg, Germany. Good move. He actually read the Bible. Wow. He actually read the Bible for the first time in his life properly. And began to read some of the early church fathers that had the actually authentic relationship with Christ. He read the Bible. He read the Bible. He did something that most people didn't do. And a half a verse changed his life. What if he had a whole verse? <laughs> Think about this for a moment. A half a verse. A phrase in a verse. The just shall live by faith. Boom! The light bulbs, bang, went on. He found how to have peace with God. It wasn't through his works and all of his things he did. It was believing in what Christ did and accepting what Christ offered that brought relationship and brought connection to the Father. And all of a sudden, in our vocabulary, Martin Luther got saved by accident. Nobody told him the sinner's prayer. He was just reading the Bible, which is helpful. And he read a half a verse of it. Bing! The just shall live by faith and his whole insides changed. And the man of God that would change the world had now been born of the Spirit. He kept reading and teaching and now he wrote one day, 95 things that should change with the Catholic Church today. He wrote them all out. And went down on Halloween Day. Mm, I'll talk about that in a minute. How did Halloween become demons, werewolves, Skeletons, dead people, on Reformation Day. Why is it one of the greatest days in modern church history, the day that the people discovered it's by faith and not by works in our culture? On October 31st was the day that Martin Luther birthed the Reformation. But in our culture, we celebrate dead demons on that day. Something tells me we don't want to know what really happened on that day. The day that the devil took another good punch in the eye. So this Halloween is the 500th year of that happening. So dress up like Martin Luther and get your candy. So this Halloween is great for the church. Why does he post the thesis? Are you all still with me?
on, on the church door. That's how you just start a discussion in those days. He didn't really want to. He did not know what was about to happen. I'll say it that way. But he nails the thesis to, to create a discussion. Now, at this time in world history, mankind finally figured out how to print the printing press or build the printing press. It took us forever to figure out movable type. I don't know why it took so long for humans who could build cathedrals to figure out how to print a page of a book. Think about that for a while. So Mr. Gutenberg finally figures it out. It is the cell phone and the laptop of the day. Okay, that's how radical this was. And so they printed the Bible, but they needed something else to print too. Luther, he's controversial. Let's print his stuff. And so they begin to print his writings and some of his sermons. Now, most people at this time in Europe are illiterate. They don't need to read because they don't have any books. They can tell you about the weather, the sun, what time it is, and when to grow what, and what animals are doing. That's how they, they were farmers. That's how they lived. So only the, the very rich and the royalty and the preachers had the ability to read. And so what happened, let me tell you this way. He all just finished work today in Germany. He worked all week long. He finished today. Germans like their beer. Italians like their wine. English like their tea. Americans like their Coca-Cola. We all have our drinks. It's true. The greatest export of America is rock and roll and Coca-Cola. It's gone around the world. You can go anywhere in the world and hear Michael Jackson sing, beat it, and find a Coca-Cola. I wish the gospel was that plentiful. Just a thought. And so, you go down to the bar, the pub. Pub culture is different than bar culture in America. So there's a little difference. It's hard for you to get unless you've been there. And so here's what they would do. They'd all go down to the bar or the pub, and they would get their beer. And if somebody could read, they would hand them one of Luther's sermons. And they would stand up on the, on the tables or something, or like it, and they would start reading their by drinking beer. Luther's sermons on the 95 things and, and all the stuff, and the Pope's the Antichrist, and da-da-da-da. I mean, he was a humdinger of a preacher. I mean, he was, when God gave him guts... He got double doses. I mean, you think I'm bold? You think I'm crazy? Hmm. You should see Martin Luther. He called the Pope the Antichrist and the Catholic Church the Harlot Church, and we still believe it today. That's how hard he preached it that it still echoes 500 years later into church history because that Pope is the Antichrist and the Catholic Church is the Harlot. And he made believers out of those people. And so they're sitting there and hitting, and then this lady or this guy's reading Martin Luther's sermons or writings. And these Germans, you know Germans, I'm half German so I can say this, we cause wars. We caused two in the last 1900 years. You know, here, you know. And then, huh. Really? Those priests did that to us? There's no purgatory? They took our money? They lied to me. All those little Pope little letters I got in my house means nothing. I knew there was something wrong, but they didn't have a Bible or an honest preacher to help them to stand on what was right. They had an inner feeling, but now somebody came along and began to teach the word to them and teach the truth to them. And the Germans, did, who's this? Uh, is there, um, 
Sorry, I'm beating your paper, paper all to death. Um, they all got mad because they've been lied to for over a thousand years. Your great-grandfather needed to put a roof on his house, but no, he wanted his wife to get out of purgatory, so all that roof money went to the church, and she wasn't even purgatory. Now, you're mad that for all those years you gave all that money away, and it was all a bunch of lies. You didn't go, oh, you got mad. You're German. Yeah! And you get mad, and you run down to the Catholic church, and you beat the priest up, and you burn stuff down, and you kill a few of them too. And that's what happened when the revolution began in Germany. It wasn't just like, oh, we have a revival. Hallelujah. And, mm, this was something that had been going on for over a thousand years. This deception with a little truth here and there, but mainly um, a milking and an abuse of the goodwill of your ancestors. The Pope heard about the trouble in Germany from one of his own preachers. And his first comment was, he's just drunk and when he quits drinking, he'll be okay. Luther kept drinking. The new wine, not the old wine. Now the third time they said, kick him out. But by this time, the truth had begun to take fire in the heart of the Germans. And they put Martin Luther on trial. On trial, like O.J. That kind of trial, that kind of thing, that kind of, that kind of thing. That's what it was. That was that kind of a trial. See, back then, they could put you on trial and kill you because you believed something different than what the church had projected. That's why you were reading his name, my conscience. I must obey my conscience. You cannot control what I think, what I believe. I formed that from my scriptures and my time with God. You cannot make me believe something that I know is not right. And they would kill and have a war. That's the conflict. And they put Luther on trial and they bring him to the courts. And there in the court of that big castle where they had the trial was all the, the Catholic dignitaries of law or, or their lawyers, I'd say like that. The German governors, the other preachers, and the windows were open kind of saying it like that. So all the peasant people, you and I, could hear what was happening. And Luther stood there in an old monk looking outfit with a weird haircut. The haircut was... You cut your hair here, and you cut all the stuff off the top. So you were bald up here, and he had a hair around here. Called a weird hairstyle, but that was the in style of the day. And so you had that hairstyle. You would not have passed. You'd be in deep trouble, brother. They would say you had an evil spirit. They put his books that they had printed that time in front of him on a table. All the people around was waiting to see what this individual person would do. The lawyer of the Catholic Church for that trial took his place and began his interrogation. Ask him, are these your writings? And he said, yes. He asked Martin Luther to recant or take back what he had written and what he had said in these books because it was heretical according to their view. And Martin Luther at first asked for 24 hours more to consider what he should do. Now you think that's strange, but for the first time in a thousand years... You're about to break with the acceptable belief of a thousand-year reign. He said he went back to his room there in the castle and fought with Lucifer until way late in the night hours. He only had a few hours of sleep, but he got his victory. 
He goes back out for the same place, for the same question, in the same spot. And this time, he has an answer. When they ask him, did you write these things? And did you say these things? And you must take it back. He comes back and he begins to say the words like this. And I'm paraphrasing. He said, I will not change anything that I've written unless you can prove to me by Scripture alone. Not by popes and bishops and cardinals who lie and contradict themselves. You cannot trust them. If you can prove to me by Scripture alone, then I will take it back. If not, here is where I stand. And in that statement of great apostolic ability, he put the first hole in the dark heavens and broke the back of a thousand year reign and brought faith back into the heart of living people again where they can connect to God without the mediator of a demon-possessed church. That is a reformational revival. When he got through, there were great shock waves throughout all of Europe. They got him on a wagon and were going to take him back to Wittenberg where he was the pastor of a church and a lecturer in a Bible school there. In the middle of the, of the German forest, knights, as you would can picture, came running on their horses and captured Martin Luther and took him off of the wagon. And they took him, they thought, to kill him. But it was the governor of Germany that sent his private guard to protect him and put him in a castle. He grew a beard and changed his name from Martin to George. I have no reason why he did that, but he did. He could have been Matthew, but he decided to be George. While a man like that who has a sharp mind and a big spirit, who now the revelation that just lived by faith is roaring in his insides, you put him in a room in a castle and say, shh, to save his life. You can't put a man confined to a room like that. But yet he can't go outside because they may capture him and kill him. But he has an idea. Let's do something wonderful. Let's translate the Bible into the German language. So for the first time in history, a little monk who just slapped the principality in the face and lived. Sat down in a room with all of his books and made the north and southern part of Germany's language become one and translate the Bible for the first time in the common language of his people. Wow. Now you take it for granted. They never had a Bible. In their language. Never had a Bible. Read to them. In their language. Now. You can get it. And they're printing it. In the language. Of the people. And a revolution. Takes off. There were 13 nuns. In a nunnery or a convent. This is more commonly known. Some of them escaped all but nine. Because 13 nuns had found a Martin Luther track about the Reformation and they wanted to join the Reformation. But they had to escape because nunneries were prisons. You couldn't really just walk out like you can today. If you got in, it was hard to get out. 
And so some of them had escaped, but nine of the 13 were still stuck inside of the Catholic prison there. And so one of the nuns' dad would bring supplies to the convent. And so she told her daddy, there's none of us that want out. Can you help us? And he thought, yeah, I have an idea. I'll bring nine barrels of supply next month. And when I empty one barrel, I'll put a nun in and I'll nail you in the barrel. And I'll put all nine nuns in a barrel and then I'll take you out into the, into the woods far enough away and then I'll pop you out and you can be free. And that's what he did. He pops nine nuns out in the middle of the German woods and they walk from there after several days, almost a week or so, to Wittenberg, Germany to meet Martin Luther. And they walk into... Wittenberg, there too. Meet Martin Luther and to talk and to say, we're here. He was in a monastery, which means all men. Here comes nine nuns to join the monastery. It wasn't quite right, but they had to do it. So they joined into the city and there stands Martin Luther. They don't know what he looks like. They go, where's Martin Luther? He goes, why? We want to talk to him and explain what they were doing. He said, I'm the man. I'm Martin Luther. He had nine nuns in a monastery. What are we going to do with nine nuns with all these men? Made a little place for the nuns to be. Then he has another wild idea. Ooh, you can't believe this one. Let's get the nuns married to some of the priests. Because you know, if you're a Catholic priest, you couldn't get married. Now let me talk about that for a minute. How stupid it is, number one, that you have to tell somebody that you couldn't get married when God made marriage and sex and babies and the whole thing. Like a devil, take everything away from me and call it no and create a problem for us today. And so what happened in early in the Catholic Church, you could get married and have a family in the very beginning. But they had a problem. Because when I died, my wife got the church and the parsonage and the land and the kids got it. And the church didn't get it. So they wanted the property. So they had to figure out a way to get the land and the house and the property. So they took Paul's suggestion that if you could be single like he, it would be good and made it a doctrine for everybody, not by the election of God over people as God sees fit to grant that ability. And every time you have a problem, it's usually when you make Paul's suggestion a doctrine. It's a different teaching, but even the woman problem is when Paul was dealing with some crazy Corinthian women and he told them to shut up because they should have been told to shut up. But that wasn't all the women to be told to shut up. It was just those crazy women to be told to shut up. Did you get that? Because Paul worked with women. Paul had women on his team. So it wasn't like Paul was anti-women. But we want to control you. So let's take Paul's suggestion or Paul's personal thing with one particular group and make it a doctor of the whole church. And so that's how celibacy came into the priesthood. Because we wanted the house and we wanted the land and we wanted the parsonage and we don't want the wife to have nothing. Amen? That's what it is. And so that's why the whole Catholic Church has all these celibate men dying to get married. And they should go get married and have lots of babies. And live happily ever after. Instead of molesting other people. Just a thought for you. You invited me. And I can't see the clock, so I don't know what time it is. So I've only got one story done. I've got about 500 to go. You want revival? Here's what it's like, folks. Because we all, all of us, we, we live in a romance of revival. That's why I'm telling this story. We live in a little romance revival. Oh, the time came. Oh, <laughs> and fall down and vibrate and do all these things. Oh, please. That's not revival. That's manifestation of your flesh reacting to the power. Because you can't get on the inside because it's all on the outside making you do that. 
Should I say that again slower? I like manifestations. I have no problem with them. But one day, all of this has to turn into inside of you and create the strength to carry the will of God in hostile environments. And sometimes our revival preaching has been from the childlike teenage style of it and from the romancing of the revival because all people tell you is the birth of it, the crescendo. They don't tell you the end and all the drama because it doesn't sound too pretty. That's why you keep repeating it. And that's why some of you, when you go out to pastor a church or bring revival to a territory in America, around the world, you get into a Martin Luther war and you don't know what it is because no one told you revival is battle. I don't know why we think revival is Praise the Lord. That is not in the book and that is not in history. Please read it correctly. If they taught you the other thing, they lied to you. Revival is a divine attack on society done by God's people with God's hand. It is an attack. It is an attack on society made by the Spirit of God with His people. And they invade the earth and they invade the heavens and they take the land. It's not vibrating and shaking. Ah! That's why some things haven't come to pass yet. You've got it all mixed up in your head. <laughs> you tell these young men, the revival is just singing and vibrating in the glory clouds, and they actually go out and get into a war, they think they backslid. They think there's something wrong with their call. They're doing something bad. Warfare is a sign you're doing something right, son. Ha! Ah! That's what it is. But you have to have the insides to survive it. And the control of your head to stay in it when everything wants to run. Welcome to revival. Most of you aren't ready for that part. You want the Catherine Kuhlman glory cloud. Ah, we're not going to have that kind of cloud. We're having a Martin Luther kind. Mm. Yeah, you're not ready for that, but it's coming. See, most of you want a visitation, not a habitation. Most of you want, bless me and my few friends and give me visions and dreams and wonderful things that I can feel goosebumps and give you. And then God sends you to some weird North Carolina small country town with drug addicts, hippies, and old mean religious people. And say, build me a work here. I heard the wrong voice. I want to go home where the cloud of glory sits and the heavens are open. Open the heavens where you're at, you lazy thing. That's what Luther did. So let me tell you about the nuns. Let me hurry for forget that. So these nuns get there and all of them get married but one. Her name was Kate. She was kind of picky. And so Martin and her kept trying to find, well, what about this guy? He's real nice. He wears a red shirt. Would you like to marry him? No, I don't want him. Uh, what about him? No, I don't want him. She goes, well, I'll take him. Uh, he don't want you. And so they had a problem like that. So they kept trying to find a guy to marry this last little nun. So finally she wrote a note to Martin and said, I'll marry you. He got nervous. Now, he wasn't against marriage, but he didn't want to get married, have a wife and have babies, and then get killed because then nobody could take care of his family. There was no Obamacare. And so that was the problem. There was no social net. There was no care. There was none of that out there. So if the man wasn't there, then everybody suffered. 
So his thing was he knew his life was in danger. At any moment he could be killed, he could be captured and then martyred and all that kind of that. So he did not want to create that. But she kept saying, but I think I like you and you like me. And, and they talked for a while and then they got married secretly. So no one could tell them not to do it. So it was announced to everyone after they were married, they got married. And the Pope got nervous and the, and the other folks he was preaching to, he got married. They couldn't believe that the head of the Reformation got married and had sex. And had a baby. They couldn't believe that. But he did. And he had lots of children. And he said he liked it. And if he knew it was that wonderful, he'd have gotten married faster. <laughs> now, Kate, his wife, was the homemaker and kind of the bossy one. She said, when I went, John Martin Luther married him, went to his house, it was terrible. The hay in the bed stunk. The place was out of order. He was a bachelor. And he gave all of his money away. So they had their first fights. So they ended their first fights over Kate owns inside the house, Luther owns outside the house. And that's the way they settled their first marriage problems. As he became famous and began to write books and people began to write his things, Kate wanted some of the money. So I got all these kids and I got to take care of this. So she creates the thing called book royalties that we do today. So all of us authors that get a royalty owe Mrs. Luther a thank you for creating the royalty function of the book business. Isn't that nice? Ever been bowling? Well, Martin Luther had a little lane in his backyard that he made up where he had the pins and the little ball. And they would play together. And that's where some of the rules for bowling came from was Martin Luther's backyard playing with his kids. Isn't that nice? Now, last one. Why do Protestants go to church at 10 o'clock? Church used to be at sunrise. But why is it that the Protestant church, our holy worship hour, is at 10 and 11 o'clock? On Saturday night, he would go down to Wittenberg Pub with his Bible school students and sit around a big table that you can still see there and drink Wittenberg beer and discuss the Bible. And they would talk and drink beer to way late in the night to where he would have a hangover and couldn't do mass at sunrise. So he changed the worship hour for the Protestants to 10 and 11 o'clock. So when you go to church at 10 o'clock on Sunday, which I will see you then, we should thank Martin Luther for having a hangover to move the worship hour to 10 o'clock. Did you know you went to worship God because the man that ran the church had a hangover? Martin Luther had a Reformation, not a revival. Reformation is stronger than revival. Reformation is not in revival, but revival is in Reformation. Reformation is the confrontation of society. Reformation is the confrontation of the heavenlies. Reformation is the confrontation and the dogmatic decision to stay in the fight to win or die fighting to get your victory. They are warlike. Martin Luther said, I, some men like to discuss and talk and argue, but I was set with an axe in my hand to fight demons, pope, and false doctrines. He was a warrior that liked a battle axe. And he would write the great hymn, Mighty Fortress is our God, a bulwark that never faileth, was his great anthem. You should sing it sometime. You might feel good about it. It's kind of old. It doesn't go with all the bands today. But it was the song of the 1500 Reformation. Time passes. John Calvin comes. 
John Knox of Scotland explodes in Scotland and prays for 13 years, give me this country lest I die. We're trying to get you to pray for five hours tomorrow, not 13 years. You want to know why some things don't happen? You don't pray long enough. <laughs> Every great revival has long seasons of prayer. Strong, loud, bold praying. Not this charismatic... <laughs> They will not create a revival. It might irritate a little small imp devil that runs around the room, but it will not create a movement in the heavens. See, most people pray like they're kin to Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. They're all scattered and yin, 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 yin. You've got to have a different type of authority. That's where you start, not where you finish. But most prayer languages are stuck in baby tongues, see Jane Run utterances. And no wonder your gift cannot come out. No wonder the call did not happen. No wonder the sky did not break open. Because Ukubu does not change the heavens. Oh, hallelujah. You want some more stories? Should I close for the night? Well, let's go to a man about five foot two. The same height as Mother Edder. They both wore dresses too, by the way. One was in the 1700s and one was in the 1800s. His name was John Wesley. His mother had 19 children. 19 children. Why? No cell phones and no birth control. She had to get toward the end of the 19 to pop out the preacher and the psalmist, John and Charles. She controlled the house. Well, you have to regimentedly when you have 19 children. When John Wesley was five years old, they would be getting up at four o'clock every morning to prepare for the day. He didn't want to get up that day because he saw some light under the, under the door and thought it was mom and dad beginning to move for the day and didn't want to get up and found out later it was actually the house was on fire. And they got everybody out but one. When you have 19 children, you've got to keep counting them because they keep moving and you think all 19 are out and you discover almost when it's too late that you're missing one and you look up on the second floor of your house stands little John Wesley about five years old and the roof of the house which is made of thatch is now on fire and a man jumps on the shoulders of another man and pulls baby John out just as the roof collapses and John Wesley's life is saved from the murdering demon that kills many children even today his mother goes you've been a brand plucked from the burning something special is about you he grows up under the discipline of his mother. His mother gets up probably with his pastor. Because in Sunday afternoon, she used to have a, a little Bible study for the children in the neighborhood. And it grew bigger than the church. And the pastor got nervous and sent a letter to her husband, who was pastoring outside London when they live in Epworth, and said, your wife is causing trouble in the church. You must stop her from having the Bible study. And so Mr. and Mrs. Wesley began to argue through letters about what they should do. And finally, she would tell him, if you take the blood and their responsibility, then I will release the Bible study. And Mr. Wesley said, I can't do that and let her keep the Bible study going. He himself would be kicked out of churches because he was a nonconformist. That means he didn't bow to the stupidities of the day. He stood on something and did not bow, but was something that made people nervous. John would go to Oxford University as a young man. 
along with his brother, and they joined and formed a club called the Holy Club. And there was a club of young men that kept each other responsible to their beliefs and their studies and to Christian service. In the middle of all that, he decided to do a missions trip to go to the place called America. That was the worst place to go in those days to the 13 colonies. Today, when we try to tell God that we love him with all of our hearts, we will tell him, I'll go to Africa for you. I'll even go to India for you. And that's the way we try to express to God that we love you to the point that we'll go to the worst place in our mind to serve you and we'll do it as happy as we can. In that day, it was coming to America. He got on the boat and left for the state of Georgia. On that boat was a group of people named, similar to the name of your town, the Moravians. And they kept bugging John Wesley about his personal relationship with Christ. He comes to shore and begins his ministry. There was a total disaster in this country. He, shouldn't, he wasn't called to America. George Whitfield was, but he was not. He came to this country and had to escape before he would get on trial. That's how John Wesley left America. Here's the story. He liked a girl that he wanted to marry. And so while he was ministering and, and he decided to go preach to the Native Americans. So he took a little trip a little further out into the woods and was gone for a while. And while he was gone, the girl that he liked fell in love with somebody else and took the hand of that man to be her husband. He was not happy about that at all when he came back. So when he was officiating communion, he decided not to give it to her, which meant in the society of that time, if you could not take communion because there was something wrong with your character. And so mom and dad got mad that the preacher named John Wesley had put a taint on their daughter's perfect little character and decided to sue him. And when he found out that he was going to have a lawsuit against him, he packed his bags and got on the next boat to London. On that boat, another Moravian shows up and pushes the issue again and invites John Wesley to come to one of their meetings on Altergate Street in England. I think John Wesley said, yes, let's get the guy to shut up. I'll go because he goes there and he comes in late and sits in the back. He's sitting in the back of this little Moravian church meeting while the pastor is reading what Martin Luther wrote 250 years before the preference or the introduction to the book of Romans. And in Martin Luther's writing, he explains what it means to believe by faith and accept Christ by faith. And John Wesley, sitting in the back, being British, not American, not African, not Italian, British, sits in the back and while it's being read, he is actually walking through those steps in his heart to believe on Christ. And as he believes for the first time with his heart that Christ will save him, the new birth experience happens and he goes from death to life, from darkness to life, and he explains it so English. My heart strangely warmed and I was saved. That's how a British man explained being born again. If he'd have been American, we'd go, whoo, we got it. That's an American. An Italian, oh, yes. But in English, my heart warmed. And he had a revelation. He thought everybody would want it, and that's a deception. 
If you think everybody wants your revelation, that's your first revelation. They don't. And they get mad at you because now you're preaching something that makes them even have to change or have to fight you. And they'd rather fight than change. That's why revival is conflict. If you all think the revival you're waiting for is going to be, <laughs> you're crazy. It's war. It is a war with humans and demons and dumb preachers who don't like their boat rocked. My opinion is, let's blow it up and blow it clear out of existence. He gets saved in the terms that we understand and starts preaching this thing called the new birth. And they declare him and the boys around him heretics and kicks them out of 90% of the British churches that would have had them before now are preaching against him and don't want nothing to do with him. That's when people, I know I've lost my ministry. You just got set free. You should have a party. George Whitfield, one of the other guys on the club. Ever heard of George? He was cross-eyed, you know. His, his, his eye here pulled. So you have some that you're ashamed of. Your ears are too big. Your nose is too big. Your butt's too big or whatever bothers you. Just think of George Whitfield. He preached his whole life with a cross-eye. So get over your problem and go on. And people, it's amazing. People say, I can't preach because my nose is too big. Well, fix it. Or forget it. Can you imagine sitting before Jesus and go, I didn't obey because you made my nose too big. How is that going to go over in heaven? But there are people all over the earth, maybe in this room, because some part of their body is not quite the way they like it, or their hair is too bushy, or they don't have any hair, or their nose or whatever. And I can't do this. If George Whitfield can become the great Billy Graham of his day with a cross-eyed, shut up and obey God yourself. And get over whatever part you're embarrassed over, or fix it and go on. Good preaching, Brother Roberts. Amen. Now, I know... For most of you, they don't mean nothing, but there are always people in the room when you teach the generals and you do these. You have to hit all these things because you'd be surprised the kind of emails I get when I leave town. I can't obey because I'm the wrong gender. No, you're not. You were born the right gender. Get over it. If you're a woman, glow. If you're a man, be strong. If you're black, white, brown, yellow, be a big. What if I was white? No, you'd be the same weird person if you're purple, green, or yellow. You need the God part of you fixed so your head thinks right. If your spirit does not govern your mind, you cannot lead a revival. And John Wesley gets kicked out. And George Whitfield, you know, he, he's a fun guy. I love I hope he lives on my block in heaven. I think he'd be hilarious to have as a neighbor. He's cross-eyed. His family owns a British bar. I don't know why all these bars are in church history, but they're everywhere. And so there's a lot of folks drinking the wrong thing at times in their life, but they're there. And so George Whitfield's dad dies. So the mom and the kids keep the bar going because that's how they make a living. And so little George is the baby of the family. So he gets up, sings and dances in the bar and people eat more and sing more and drink more to so make more money. So he wants to be an actor in the British theater when he grows up. So he goes to Oxford, don't have a lot of money. So he has to be uh, like a cafeteria helper in the school to pay for his college. Why is there? He bumps in the Holy Club, gets saved, becomes a whole thing and becomes a great preacher. And he does something that shocks the whole Christian world. He... Like me. So if you're back then and you're a preacher in England in that time, you had to stay. He had to wear those black robes and those ugly wigs. And he had to stay in this little box behind the pulpit. 
and you wore your black robe and you had your wig and you talked monotone. The Lord is good and His faithfulness is wonderful and He is grand and da da da. And you talk like that all the time. And you can only gesture inside this little box like this. And that's all you could do because they thought by going hi and ho and ho would distract from the message. And they wore the robe to cover their clothes so their fashion and the colors of their clothes would not distract from the message. And they tried to hide behind the words and speak them monotone, believing that the word would have more power if you were just monotoned. Well, George Whitfield couldn't do that because he wanted to be an actor. And so he just couldn't be that boring preacher. So he gestured outside the box and he raised and lowered his voice when he preached. And people couldn't believe it. That's what they were fussing over, not your long hair. They were fussing over him raising his voice. Well, he didn't care about a building. John did. Because John was raised in high church, where God lives inside of a building, <laughs> not outside. So George reveals, no problem. You don't let me preach in your building? I'll preach outside. So he goes down to the coal miners and starts to preach. And the first few days, not much happens. By the end of the month, he has over 10,000 people listening to him preach. Just a small revival. And he gets them all excited and preaches there for a while. And then sends John Wesley there and says, come take this revival. I've got to go to the next town. And John goes, well, I came because I was George's friend. But I wasn't sure I should preach outside. Because God belongs in a building. But because John or George asked him, John came and he sat in the crowd. And he watched things happen. People fall down, vibrate, cry, manifest, all these things. And he's sitting there thinking, how do I do this? Because it's not inside. I've got to be inside of a building. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? He had a problem. He saw 10,000 people, but he had to be in a building that could only seat 300 people. Churches weren't big in those days. They didn't have the money to build them that big. The crowd was that big. So why are you sitting there trying to figure out how to make it work? A thought hits him. The Sermon on the Mount is outside. And that most of the Lord's ministry is outside. And that's how he gets to preach outside. When he figures out most of the Lord's ministry is done Outside. And that's when the world becomes his parish. He would ride 250,000 miles by horseback in his lifetime, preaching the gospel. You go, why would he preach 250,000 miles by horseback? Two reasons, a call and a bad marriage. That's why he did it. All right, that brings up another discussion. Marriages. Jesus, help us. A lot. After being born again, the biggest decision of your life is who you spend your life with. Most humans in America have to go through three to find the right one. Which is very sad. Even in Pentecostalism. Now, I love Pentecostalism, but they have terrible marriages. Amy was married three times. Can you imagine that? Three times. 
back when divorced people might not make it to heaven. She was married three times, divorced twice. And built the greatest church of the time, Angelus Temple and the Four Square Denomination, as a divorcee twice. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. It's amazing what God does with crazy people. Catherine, Catherine married a jackrabbit. And she lost everything. I'll tell her story tomorrow. Why do people marry the wrong person? You know how John Wesley married this crazy woman? All of his friends got married. All of them. Got married and he was by himself. And he felt lonely. Lonely. He got sick and had fell off his horse. And he went to, because there was no hospitals. So you go to a, a friend's house. And so there was a lady there who was had sympathy toward Methodism. That was his church. And so he was mending and getting better in her house. And found out that she was a nice lady and she liked Methodists and decided to marry the dumb thing. Because she liked Methodists. Where's that in the book? You marry a woman because she likes your church denomination. That's how he married her. It was a terrible marriage. I'll explain one thing and let you get the whole thing. There was a young preacher that knocked on the door of his house one day. And he said, come in, he thought. And he heard some noise in the back where the kitchen was. You can go see his house today. It still stands. And um, uh, so this young preacher goes in the back because that's where he hears the noise. And he walks into the kitchen here. Mrs. Wesley had John by his head pulling him around the kitchen screaming at him. That was his marriage. Now, would you rather go preach a crusade or go home? That's John Wesley's marriage. So, what's the moral of the story? Be slow and don't marry to cause someone sympathetic towards your cause. That's stupid. Please, stupid. He did that in the midst of the revival. The anointing is everywhere on him. He's preaching and things are happening. And he marries the wrong person. It happens all the time. And who you marry sets the altitude of how far you can go in many things. When she dies, he writes a half a paragraph that his wife died that day. She'd get up in his crusades and accuse him of affairs. They didn't need CNN. She was all seen him by herself. That's how John Wesley, he'd get up and preach and his wife would say, He's having an affair with the women in the church. Welcome to revival. <laughs> Listen, this is the part people don't tell you. They just tell you about John Wesley's anointing praying for his sick horse and he gets healed. <laughs> we get excited about that. He prayed for a horse. And it's true. He had a horse because he wrote most of his sermons on the back of the horse. And the horse was so good, but they rode together for so long and he got sick, was going to have to be put down. And he prayed to the Lord, Lord, you need this horse because I need this horse. Because if I had to get a new horse, I can't write my sermons and do my correspondence. And this horse I need, so would you please heal my horse? And God heals his horse. Now, you like that story, don't you? Woo! But what about the woman? What about the one he tried to kiss that slapped him? That's John Wesley's marriage. Welcome to revival. Nobody tells you that. Nobody will give in a church like this to revival people at 10 o'clock and tell you, be careful who you marry. 
And then tell you, John Wesley had a terrible marriage. Well, did you want him to get married? No. He was probably one of those who should have stayed single all of his life. Every once in a while, you find a person who is called that way by God's grace. And it's okay. But if you don't have that, then you can't do it. But don't kiss too much until you know. Because the third kissing session, you go deaf. And you don't listen to pastor, you don't listen to your mom and dad, you don't listen to your friend, you don't even listen to God until about six months after the honeymoon. You go, my God. He goes, I tried to tell you, but you weren't listening. George Whitfield comes to America and brings revival across our young country and creates the first seat in our great country where the president and the evangelists sit together. That in our lifetime, it was Billy Graham and the president. That position in our culture was created by the cross-eyed preacher from England named George Whitfield. It was his preaching that began to create the phraseology that would come into our language as one nation under God. Benjamin Franklin was a scientist who decided to check out the man named George Whitfield. Because he'd heard when the man preaches, people fall out of trees and off the high rocks, and he thought that was kind of strange. So he came and got himself knocked off of a rock too, and became a believer in George Whitfield. And that's why we have his sermons, because Ben Franklin would print his sermons in the newspaper, later into a book. And our first great evangelist that Billy Graham sits in office was George Whitfield. There'd be another man named D.L. Moody, the greatest layman that ever preached to a hundred million people in his lifetime and died December 31st, 1899. But he never was ordained. Do you know why? Because he couldn't pass the church membership test. <laughs> It's true. He tried, he couldn't pass the catechism <laughs> to be a church member. Think, think, think of this. The greatest preacher of the time couldn't join a church because he couldn't pass the test. It's the truth. And that's why he wouldn't allow himself to be ordained. And they called him the greatest layman that ever lived. He was fat. They called him the country bumpkin. In those days, there was this new thing called Sunday school. Cell groups have taken the place of Sunday school. It's kind of the grandchild of the Sunday school movement. He was in Chicago. Abraham Lincoln would come to see his Sunday school thing. And he was down in the bad part of Chicago. And he had the largest Sunday school at the time. And the convention, Sunday school convention, that was birthed out of England, where it came from, they were having it in England. So they asked him to come and they were scared to let him preach because he was so uncouth in his vocabulary and in his manner. He was... A little odd compared to everybody. But while there, a revival broke out and he became famous. And people in America kept saying, D.L.? D.L.'s doing that? D.L.'s got crowds like that? They couldn't believe. Nah. He became famous overseas and came back and became the great D.L. Moody. He went to the Chicago fire. That night, he didn't give an altar call. And he changed 
his whole way of living. He said, I'll never preach again without giving an altar call because that night people that were supposed to come back the next night to get saved died in the fire. Dio Moody changed. He created the altar call that you see today with Billy Graham and the soloist that would sing songs. His name was Ira Sankey. He was a businessman that had a good voice. Are you enjoying my stories? Yes. Are you sure? Who am I talking about? No. What person? Dia. I got you. You have to listen. I do tests in the middle of my sermons. Ira Sankey sees D.L. Moody rolling a barrel down the street of Chicago. Because he thought he was going to have lunch with the guy, not roll a barrel down the street. And D.L. says hello to Ira. He goes, get up there on that barrel and sing real good like you did in church the other night. And when the crowd gets real good, I'll push you off and I'll get up there and I'll preach. And that's how the great psalmist preaching team of Moody Sinke was born. He was in Chicago at the time of a man named John Alexander Dowie, who was the governor, spiritually speaking, of Chicago. Chicago was a revival capital of the time. Had the two greatest preachers of the day in that city. D.L. Moody on one side and Dowie on the other. Dowie had come from Scotland to Australia to America with a healing gift that was rare, so rare. Similar to Wigglesworth in the way that he would hit and knock things off of people's bodies and they would fall off and roll down the floor. He had a tremendous gift like that. He built a great church there and, of course, they don't like the governor. That's why they fight him. D.L. Moody gets sick. And Dowie sends him a letter. If you'll repent of all your bad things you said about me, I'll come and pray for you and God will heal you. Moody didn't, so Moody died. And Dowie would live for another seven to eight years and continue his ministry. At the same time in America in the late 1800s was a little woman by the name of Maria or Mariah Woodworth Etter, who married a Civil War veteran who tried to be a farmer, had six children and five of them died, all but one little girl. When they didn't make a living make it being a farmer, they decided they might want to do the ministry because when Maria was a little girl, she had a vision of sitting in a wheat field and the wheat fell all down around about her. And the Lord spoke to her, the slaying of the Lord shall be many in your life in ministry. Didn't know what that meant. So after nothing else worked and five kids died, they think, well, we might as well try the ministry. So she tries to be ordained through a resistant male-dominated group. They ordain her because she's a persistent little feisty woman. You have to be to survive the time and them. They ordain her to get her to shut up and go away. I'm trying to close my first closing now. They try to get her to go away. Right, so they ordain her. And they send her to a place that was nicknamed the Devil's Den because all the preachers had gone there and failed. So they thought, let's send her. She'll fail, she'll shut up, and then she'll go away. They didn't know they'd have sent the best thing to town. First off, women didn't preach. So it was an oddity. So everybody said, you can't believe what's in town. A woman preacher has come to town. You gotta go see this woman who's gonna try to preach. And so she had a crowd. They all came to see the oddity of a woman preacher. 
And as she got to preaching, the word started working, the spirit started moving, and people started getting saved. And a revival broke out, and when she got done months later, she had a church over 200 with a healthy Sunday school, and the group that ordained her repented for being so mean and got behind her. Praise God, they could change. And she became their best church planner that network ever knew. Then God began to use her signs and wonders, and she had this odd thing called trances, which we don't see much of today. When you just become... For an hour. Or a day. Sinner, saint, child, boy, girl, mom and dad. Boop. And you'd come back and then you were gone for a half a day. You've been out and seen heaven, hell or something. And come back. People begin to have that happen. Her meetings would grow to over 25,000 people. Of a tent. And then they have hotels. She had a tent next to the big tent. That's where she slept. Great lady. Married. Oh, sheesh. One of those men things again. Her husband never really liked the ministry, but he liked the money. Because that's how they made a living. So he would sell the books and, you know, the food at the tent and all that. She goes to California. Has the worst meeting of her life. Welcome to California. <laughs> she always felt like God called her out there. So she goes out there and puts up her tent. So these things happen. So the hoodlums kept cutting the ropes of the tent and it would fall down on the people. That was one thing. Then they went and got the mentally ill from the hospital and released them in the tent. And they ran around the tent and caused trouble that way too. And then the guy that lent her the land kept saying no. She had to keep moving the tent all over San Francisco and Oakland. Then her husband decides to have an affair in that meeting. So that happens. Then Gowie shows up the first time they meet. Because Gowie comes from Australia. Gowie's a really interesting guy. He's, um, well, he's unique. He used to believe this. Unless you were saved, you didn't deserve to be healed. So before he would pray for you in the beginning, he would interview you to see if you were a Christian. And if he didn't think you were a Christian, he wouldn't pray for you because you didn't deserve to be healed. So just go home and be sick. And so that's how he began his ministry in America. <laughs> and so he was in a San Francisco hotel and the newspapers had noise. An Australian healer had come to America and he allowed the newspapers to sit in the room with him and watch everything. He was not scared to put the press and them right in the same room because he trusted God and God came through. So he went through people lined up down the hallway of the hotel and halfway down the stairwell. To come to get interviewed to see if Dowie could heal them. And he went through lots of people. And finally found one woman with a big gourd the size of like a coconut, it says in the paper. That uh, he prayed for. Because he, he believed that she was a Christian. So he didn't pray for her. Can you imagine this? He gets up after he interviews her and says, you're a Christian. You have the right to be healed. Walks over to her and slaps the thing off of her neck and it rolls across the floor. And he goes and picks it up with his hanky and shows the newspaper guys. That's what God does. That's his first miracle in America. That's how Dowie did stuff. And so he, he thinks he's the only healing evangelist. Now, that's not arrogant. That's called lack of communication because they only have newspapers. And there's not satellites and phones. and the, So it's done in a very old and long way. And so he hears about Mother Edder, a woman 
getting people healed too. So he comes over to the meeting and likes the first couple of days, but when the starts, he gets mad because he don't have that in his meeting. So he goes back to the newspapers and tells them that transevangelism is of the devil and fights Mother Edder. And a divine relationship that God was arranging broke for life. After your marriage, your next hardest relationship is the divine relationships of God to become together. She writes in her journal a little sentence and a half. We all know where Dr. Dowry will end. She saw his problems in the beginning and got arranged for the only one who would not be intimidated by his personality or his gifting and was older in the things of the spirit than anybody else he had had to arrange to be in their life to help each other. But the devil split them apart. Dowie would die thinking he was Elijah. And dying building a city God told him not to build. Mother Edder, by the way, ends happy. She becomes the grandma of the Pentecostal church. All the other people like John G. Lake and F.F. F. Bosworth and Brother because all looked up to Mother Edder. She was, had all nine gifts of the Spirit in her ministry before 1900. Predates Pentecost, Azusa Street. A lady. She was an old lady. She built a church. It's called Edder Tabernacle in Indianapolis, Indiana. 500 people. That was a mega church then. There was a 28 year old young lady who wanted to meet her because she was this famous lady. But there was a quarantine over Indianapolis. Smallpox had somehow broken out. And they told a little lady named Amy McPherson. You can't get into Indianapolis because there's a quarantine. She goes, when I get to the border, they'll lift it. An hour before she got there, they lifted the quarantine. And she drove in and spent an evening with the person she would take the mantle from, Mother Edder. And Sister McPherson would come on the scene as the First Lady of Pentecost. She would build a church in California that would have a tithe of the L.A. population. In those days, it was 250,000 people in L.A. She had 25,000 members in her church. Survived two kidnappings and a daily attack of the press against her. And ruled L.A. for the glory of God. Mrs. McPherson was why you sit in church tonight with your red lips and makeup and earrings. And not be called Jezebel and Delilah. <laughs> Second closing. They asked her one time, because back then Pentecostals, you had to be ugly to be anointed. Because everything that you did was of the devil. She'd cut her hair and wear makeup. And they asked her one time, why do you wear makeup? They couldn't really disqualify her because she had the biggest crowds and the greatest altar calls and the greatest miracles of the time. So they knew that God was with her. They couldn't connect makeup and power together. And she would say, any old barn looks better with a coat of paint. And that's why you can sit on the front row of my meeting with your dangly earrings and be okay. 
because Sister Amy cut her hair and wore a paint for Jesus. And that's why the Pentecostals got beautiful. So all of us men, when we get to heaven, need to hug Sister Amy for making the girl we married look so good because you had to marry an ugly one before. She would die of an accidental overdose of medication in Oakland, California in her 50s. Oh, what a lady. They asked her one time, what's the secret of your success? She goes, I preach the great I am, not the great I was. That was her key. Wow. Father, we thank you for tonight. For having our opening night of just reviewing a few of the people you used to change the world. Ah, we thank you that we can do it again. Oh, Holy Spirit. We love you with all of our hearts, our mind, and our souls. We don't want to be afraid of any human or demon or the time that we live in. We ask for bravery. We ask for courage for our time. Father, we need a generation that's full of the spirit of bravery and courage and bold faith. Oh, unashamed to be and to say and to do your will in front of anybody and everybody. Father, we thank you that you begin to change even people here in this house tonight and begin to show them there is more to them than what they know and there must be a reconstruction of their insides to be able to face the time that we live under a mighty power to do mighty things unashamedly. Father, we thank you for the Joshua's that are here, but we need the Caleb's to wake up and become a part of this hour too. I pray for my older generation here tonight that you will get out of your old age mindset. I command that retirement spirit to come out of you and let you go free. I command that attitude that has begun to imprison you and tell you that you must be quiet and sit down and shut up. I break the power of that rebuking spirit against you. I command that spirit to shut up and to come out of your house. And those words to die over your life. I pray for my Caleb generations to take their mountain. To take their mountain. For this revival is not just of young, but it is young and old together under the mandate of God. Oh, says the Spirit of God, I am bringing alive both generations to fulfill my destiny in this day. 
So do not say that you are done and that it is over, says the Spirit of God. But I have a fresh call and a new anointing and a new ability to come over you where you can run like the young and build like the strong and enjoy the hour in which you are living in. Ah, Sadaka says the Spirit of the Lord. Shake yourself now and come alive. Shake yourself now and move again. Shake yourself now and let the gift that I've given you come alive and move again through you. For those gifts were not just made for the days of your youth, but they're made for the days of your years, says the Spirit of God. Awaken them and release them and cooperate with them. And great shall be your fruit and great shall be your joy and your ending shall be that of a great one whose days have gone brighter and brighter and not dimmer and dimmer as the man of the culture has said to you, says the Lord. Do not even say I'm sick and don't even say I don't feel good. Change your words and change your life. For I hear and wait for the words I can work with, says the Lord. The words that some of you are speaking, I do not know. I do not work with. Change your words and speak words I can work with on your behalf, says the Spirit of the Lord. And English. And change who you run with, says the Spirit of God. Leave those who want to be dead alone in your past and join the young and the living and run again. Again, upon the high parts of your call. Let them that wish not to obey, let them go, says the Spirit of the Lord. Let them go and have no power of control over you. And join the living and the running. And you will find that you will keep pace and you will be great as they are as you obey me, says the Spirit of the Lord. Let's stand up if you can, please. You've been seated for a while. Minor keys. Let's pray in tongues for a few moments. You all have that ability, so use it right now. Fanda bolo la kala leke ha ha so hornam mahala hikalanda hor barire sidima ye brunkalanda hire fanda haiske frunkoro ho de hekas neka mahaya dai oh ho de sidima ne mano okahase ge ngada ni atai amba adakoso mara hatai fimbe imba kandondo wo rebahaka yanta haye lingere bakono manahanga nyongo no deske nyanga sakataka ye raborongo da kingdom mahaya if you are an older person who has been in ministry and it is not working properly for you now. It's not even even having a heartbeat. Come right now to the front. If you're a person that has been in ministry and you're older, I'm not trying to embarrass you. 
We all, there's young and old in this room, okay? You know who you are. If that is you, come right now. There's an anointing to help fix you. If your gift has been dormant or been pushed aside or it's not working like it's supposed to. And you've kind of given up. Nobody knows me. Nobody understands me. Come! Come, 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 come. Come! Come! I'll not pray for you in the parking lot or in the bookstore. I'll pray for you now only. Come while there's an anointing. Move faster than you that. Quit being so old. Don't let that old spirit dictate to you. Oh, glory be to God forever. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. God loves you. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. How are you doing? You look too calm. Mm. Come out of him and let him be free. Go! I command both of those spirits, loose him. Loose him and let him be free in the name of Jesus. Saka Come out of her. Monday, loose her abilities. Oh, let her mouth be free and her eyes see. Oh, no, you don't. Weirdness, come out of her. And obey. Hallelujah. Do more than sing. Do more than sing. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Reach your hands out and just pray in tongues over them for a few minutes while God's working on them. Oh, cut a little bit stronger. A little bit stronger. Come on, you can pray a little bit stronger. Hallelujah. Do you pray in tongues? Every day? Yes. Out loud? No. Can we do that? Yes. Loud enough, do grandma. Loud enough, your ears hear your voice. And Holy Spirit, let His prayer language increase. Let it begin to become more fluent. Flow so the wells get deeper inside of Him. Not stranger, but deeper. Deeper. So that the beauty of His gift and the beauty of His life can be oh, enjoyed by many. Hallelujah. Well, hallelujah. Old people don't have to be old. Old people don't have to be old. Old people don't have to be old. Hallelujah. They don't have to be old. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. Hallelujah. Father, heal bodies. Give new parts to where they need them. Restore where they can run and take mountains. Like Caleb did. Let the spirit of Caleb come alive over them and inside of them. Hallelujah. Glory be to God forever. Hallelujah. Isn't the Lord wonderful? Amen, amen, and amen. I like Friday nights. You don't have to worry about time. I know it's, but it's Friday night. There's not much to do in town. That's why you got a good church, folks. It's the best thing going. Hallelujah. Amen. We're not in a hurry. Let's just worship God. We're going to pray for some more people. But they're not done yet. So let's just worship God while He finishes. Said, okay, can you sing something for us? We'll just follow you. And amen. Hallelujah. Let's worship God while He finishes, and then we'll go next. All right? Don't get off the floor until you're done, though. All right? Go ahead, ma'am. Hallelujah. Soda kona mamaya.
All the earth Come on, lift it up. You can sing louder than that. Come on. Been light. Oh, Rabakara Bahaya. Tremble at his voice. Is our God? Sing with me how great our God. All thinking how great. Hallelujah. Oh, Rabana Kishigemahayai. Is our God. One more time. How great. How great. How great is our God. Sing with me how great my God. How great is our God. Now. If you are 25 years and younger in this room, come forward. Twenty-five years and younger. Hallelujah. They're okay. Let's leave them alone until they're done. Hallelujah. The day of the young evangelist has come again. In the early 1900s, people your age was filling auditoriums of five to 8,000 people and preaching to them and building churches. Most people don't know that. But across America, there was a wave of child and teenage evangelists. One girl, 14, filled Madison Square Garden for six weeks and got thousands of people saved and built churches that still exist today at 14. And the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Presbyterians all supported her meetings. That's how annoyed she was. That day has come again. The day of the young evangelist. The day of the young child evangelist has come again to the earth. And I lay my hands on you tonight. That God will interrupt your thinking and your planning. And cause you to hear and to see and to understand there's something greater than what you've known that you can have. You pray in tongues? Would you like to? You don't know. After I pray for you, let somebody talk to you, okay? So whoever does that in the church, here's your nice young man to help answer your questions, okay? Speaking in tongues don't make you weird, it makes you normal. If you don't pray in tongues, you're kind of weird. Father, we bless him. In the name of Jesus, arrest him and give him new insights. And I bless you. Be blessed in the name of Jesus. So what are you going to do with your life? Well, Father, let her find out about it soon. So she don't waste years doing stupid things. In Jesus' name. Be blessed in the name of Jesus. You don't have to fall. That's not what I'm after. Just receive. You're the parking lot guy. I remember talking when I came in. Father, bless the parking lot guy. Touch his heart and his mind. Give him a life that only you can grant. And let it start in the now, we pray. In the name 
of Jesus. How are you? Where are you from? Uh, here in North Carolina, Ash County. Ash County. How old are you? Fourteen. You happy? Yeah. All right. Very happy. Good. I like your answers. From the top of your head to the sole of your feet. Let the, there it is. The blessing of the Lord overtake you. And Father, give him more. Give him more. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. Amen. This year, all your family? The, the whole tribe. Oh, that's okay. Now, crowd, don't sit down in the spirit on me. You can watch, but stay up in the spirit with me, okay? It's okay to watch. The Bible says watch and pray. Don't sleep and pray. Watch and pray. So stay active with me for a few more minutes. We bless you in the name of Jesus. Open their eyes and their ears and their mouths, for they can hear, see, and speak far beyond their years. We bless you in the name of Jesus. We bless you. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Bless mom. In the name of Jesus. Out of the mouths of babes come perfect praise. Be blessed in the name of Jesus. Now, I've been preaching at you all night long. How old are you? 25. You're the perfect 25. So what are you doing in your, with your life right now? Okay, good. Is that what God told you or what you chose? Okay, just ask him. When I was 25, I built my first church. Not bad. So hurry up. No, it goes there. I don't care about your head. Amen to that. But that's what your field you're going into. In the name, in the name of Jesus. We place blessing over his life in Jesus' name. Varast, Bekesusto, Angasote, Na Zogolomono, Saka Haka Haye, Teki Siahaye, Alalokonal, Father, loosen him up where he's not so starchy and he can flow. And let his head come under the government of his spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You pray in tongues? No. You don't. That's the problem. Okay. Here. Come and stand with him. And you guys be two twins just for a minute. Do you pray in tongues? Okay. Great. That's good. Amen. Lift your hands up and just pray in tongues just for one more moment before we close this out. Hala kosamahaye. Hala kosamahaye. In the name of Jesus. Come on, just a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, hallelujah. I'm, I'm not done, but I'm going to stop. Is that okay? You understand? Because we got tomorrow. You're revival people. One of the weaknesses of revival people is they don't make their youth go with them. That's why the Welch Revival failed. 
in the sense of going generation. They never included the children properly. They were touched but not trained to carry it and made to go with them. They're saying, you've got to take your young people with you. You Caleb's, find you some Joshua's and pull. Get, the, get, the, get that two generations working together. Because there's no generation gap in the spirit. That's only in the natural, that's from the carnal world, that's not in the God kingdom. So get those two things going, amen? Talk to your grandchildren. Pray with them out loud in tongues so they can hear it. So they may not like it, but when they're 40 years old, they'll remember you going da -da -da -da, over the breakfast table over there. And they'll remember it. If they don't like it, it's their problem. It's your house. You're older. Be it. Amen. I'm just going to give it to you because I'm not done, but I'm just going to quit till tomorrow because it is ungodly at the hour we are right now. Father, bless the people. Let that which has been shared and spoken be sealed. And we hold this in the spirit to where we pick up tomorrow and go further. In Jesus' name. And everybody that agreed said, Amen. Pastor. Thank you, Lord.